Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. An active shooter in an Indiana mall. But this time, it's not the police who stopped him. A new poll suggests many Americans hope their nearby civilians are armed. For years, a pair of naturalized American citizens have allegedly been defrauding foreigners out of millions of dollars. One of their reported schemes, building a Chinese Disneyland in New York. Oil prices went up after President Biden's Saudi Arabia trip. Why is that? And what did the kingdom say about increasing oil production? Biden recently said he would use military force as a last resort to prevent Iran from making a nuclear bomb. But a top Iranian official says Iran already has that capability. Congress members are pushing a bill to add four justices to the Supreme Court, which would force the nation's highest court to reverse direction. How far are the lawmakers willing to go? Leah Thomas was nominated for the NCAA's Woman of the Year Award, a nomination sparking controversy given that Thomas is transgender. An armed civilian stopped an active shooter in Indiana last night. Might that change some people's perspective on gun rights? One poll suggests many Americans hope that armed civilians will be nearby in this type of situation. A gunman killed three people and wounded two others after he opened fire in a suburban Indianapolis shopping mall. On Monday afternoon, police said the gunman was a 20-year-old Indianapolis man with a juvenile record. His past incidents with the Greenwood Police Department include minor offenses as a juvenile, such as a fight at school and um, uh, being a juvenile runaway. According to police, the shooter walked into the Greenwood Park Mall with a rifle and several magazines of ammunition and began firing in the food court. A 22-year-old man then shot and killed the gunman. The armed citizen was praised by police and the Greenwood mayor. The mayor said, I am grateful for his quick action and heroism in this situation. In early July, Convention of States Action and the Trafalgar Group conducted a poll. It showed that almost 42% of people asked believe that an armed citizen would be their best protection if they were caught in a mass shooting event. Over 62% say they are not confident their local law enforcement and government officials could identify and stop a violent person before they started a mass shooting. Mark Meckler is the president of Convention of States Action. He says the poll's results don't surprise him. And that's just logical. The police can't be everywhere, government can't be everywhere and citizens are everywhere. So what it's telling me is that, by and large, the American citizen is a common sense individual who understands reality as it exists. Nowadays, some people say only the police should have guns. Many of those people believe that most shootings could be prevented if regular citizens wouldn't have easy access to guns, especially semi-automatics. Meckler says that idea would have made no sense whatsoever to our founding fathers. The Second Amendment, more specifically, though, also deals with a broader problem is how does one defend himself or herself or their family, community or country against a tyrannical government? And that's where the idea of having an armed population comes in. The founders had actually fought a war against a tyrannical government. That government tried to disarm them to prevent them from defending themselves. So they had real life experience with the broader example of defending yourself against a tyrannical government. He added that the idea of not having an armed population sounds good only to tyrants. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News, New York. And more information on the Uvalde school shooting is out. A new report and body cam footage were released, and the acting police chief is suffering the consequences. Here are the details. The new footage partly shows officers who responded to the scene helped children escape through a window. The Texas State House of Representatives released an almost 80-page long report. It says big mistakes were made when the nearly 400 officers responded to the shooting. There is no one to whom we can attribute malice or ill motives. Instead, we found systemic failures and an egregious poor decision-making. The report says the overall approach to the shooting was careless. In the bottom line, the report found is that law enforcement responders failed to adhere to their active shooter training and they failed to prioritize saving the lives of innocent victims over their own safety. Lieutenant Mariano Pargas was the acting police chief on the day of the shooting. 
He's been placed on administrative leave, according to the town's mayor. It's not clear whether the leave is paid or not. Lieutenant Pargas told the committee that he figured the school district's police chief had jurisdiction over the incident and the Uvalde police were there to assist. The report says the school district's police chief failed to perform or to transfer to another person the role of incident commander. It says the void of leadership could have resulted in the loss of life because injured victims had to wait for over an hour to get treatment. The room is full of victims. The school district's police chief was put on leave last month for not immediately confronting the gunman. We gotta get in there. He skips me. We gotta get in there. The report says that the gunman, 18-year-old Salvador Ramos, might have been sexually abused as a child. His friends and girlfriend told investigators that Ramos became increasingly depressed during the CCP virus pandemic. In total, 21 people died on the day of the shooting. An allegedly fraudulent scheme that lost innocent investors millions of dollars ended today after two Chinese naturalized U.S. citizens were arrested on federal conspiracy charges. The pair claimed to have ties to former President Donald Trump. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. According to a Justice Department complaint, more than 150 investors lost millions of dollars on an investment scheme that promised to construct an educational institution in rural New York. Allegedly, many of the investors were foreign nationals living outside of the United States who were promised green cards and access to prominent U.S. politicians in exchange for their investments. Sherry Shui Li and Lian Bo Wang are accused of cooking up a multi-layered scheme which defrauded investors out of more than $27 million. The pair allegedly convinced investors by saying they had the support of prominent politicians. For example, The Patch reported that federal prosecutors said Lee took a photo in June 2017 with then-President Trump at a fundraiser, then used it to solicit investments for the fake project. They also allegedly charged 12 foreign nationals $93,000 each to attend the fundraiser. A special agent said in a statement that the pair used the illegal money to live a luxurious life and make friends with prominent politicians. In December 2013, the New York Post reported that Lee approached officials in a small upstate New York community about building a Disney-like China city of America, complete with an amusement park, huge mansions, and a famous Chinese city. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Now to energy news. After weeks of relative declines, oil prices are again on the rise today. This came after President Biden wrapped up his Saudi Arabia trip without winning a pledge from the kingdom to boost its oil output. On Monday, Brent crude, the international benchmark, was up around 5% to more than $106 per barrel. West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. benchmark, also spiked nearly 4% to more than $101 a barrel during the day. The prices jumped after the Saudi foreign minister said boosting oil supply wasn't even raised during Biden's meeting with Arab leaders, ending speculation over an output increase. The higher prices were also propped up by a weaker dollar and concerns over tight supply. Markets will be watching the next OPEC meeting slated for August 3rd. And during Biden's trip to the Middle East, the United States and Israel made an agreement to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. And President Biden said the U.S. would use military force as a last resort. Now, a senior advisor to Iran's supreme leader says Iran is capable of making a nuclear bomb. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. Attacking Iran, trying to destroy their facilities becomes a completely different game if Iran has even one operational bomb. I spoke with Dr. Connie Savasivam, who is the director of the William H. Bates Center for Public and Global Affairs, and he's also a professor of international relations. I asked him about the recent security agreement made between the United States and Israel, and he said it's not a pact or a treaty and there's nothing legally binding about it, and it would mostly be used for political gains for both countries. 
On Sunday, a senior advisor to Iran's supreme leader said on Al Jazeera that Iran is now capable of making a nuclear bomb, but they haven't made the decision to build one. I might disagree with some of the more uh, strident voices coming out of Israel uh, or pro-Israeli uh, Americans and so on. And that is that somehow on the very next day after Iran acquires a nuclear weapon, they're going to drop it on Tel Aviv. Okay, that's just that's just stupid, uh, right? Because the Iranians might be many things, but they're not idiots. Savasivam says Iran can use it in other ways. Look at the leverage and advantage Russia has, where it has, without any provocation or justification, brutally invaded a neighboring state, is doing all kinds of horrible things inside Ukraine. But what is Russia's claim? Nobody can attack Russia back in retaliation. Even the Ukrainians who the Russians are attacking, the Russians are saying, you don't have a right to attack us back on Russian soil, on Russian territory. And if you dare do that, what will happen? We threaten nuclear escalation. He says Iran obtaining a nuclear bomb would embolden the Persian country, which is already covertly meddling in the affairs of many countries in the region in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Kuwait, in Bahrain. I mean, they're meddling everywhere. And of course, they're also now meddling on the other side in Afghanistan. And that is without nuclear weapon. If they had nuclear weapons, they would be a thousand times more brazen because the attitude is we can do whatever we want, but nobody can retaliate against us. Nobody can retaliate against us on our own soil. On our, in our own territory, because then there is the threat of us escalating to nuclear weapons. So that is the problem. And he said that sanctions are not necessarily the way to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon, because the country's leadership does not care about the welfare of the Iranian people. And he said even though Biden said the U.S. would use military force if necessary, Israel is more likely than the United States to strike Iran to prevent Iran from making nuclear weapons. Jason Perry, NTD News. Today, a group of Democrats rallied to expand the number of justices on the Supreme Court. This is to force the nation's highest court to reverse course after a string of conservative rulings. But the White House has so far reserved its support for the expansion. NTD's Melina Weiskup has those details. From abortion access to gun rights, the government's regulatory authority, and more, the Supreme Court has issued a string of rulings that have blunted Democrats' decades-long legislative victories. We can't assume for a second that the court is done, as my colleagues have mentioned. Now, more than 60 House Democrats and a handful of senators are pushing a bill to add four justices to the nation's highest court to force a change in direction for interpreting the laws of the land. Expanding the court will protect us from future bad decisions. A move that President Biden has repeatedly said he does not support. Despite the lack of support from the White House, Democrats on Capitol Hill have called to expand the court for the past year, while Republicans have painted it as a radical effort to exert control. Democrats push back that the idea is radical, citing the fact that the number of sitting justices have been changed seven times. We can do it an eighth time, absolutely. However, the current nine justice makeup has not changed since 1869. And a repeated message we heard from many of these members is that they want to hold justices accountable if they rule differently than they said they would as they were going through their Senate confirmation hearings. We asked them if this means they would be open to giving Congress or the White House the ability to unseat justices if they did rule differently than they originally said they would. Here's their response. All um, ideas are on the table. Our form of government is in need of remodeling, rehab. And just today, members in the Democrat-controlled House introduced legislation to solidify same-sex marriage across all 50 states. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer says he will bring this vote to the floor this week. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And scrutiny continues to mount over Nancy Pelosi's husband's purchase of semiconductor stocks right before Congress's move to boost that industry. And today, the House Speaker's office responded to criticism over insider trading. 
Her spokesman told news outlets on Monday that the speaker does not own any stocks and, quote, has no prior knowledge or subsequent involvement in any transactions by her husband. The controversy comes as a disclosure shows Paul Pelosi bought millions of dollars worth of stock in a computer chip company. And he did it right as Congress is slated to vote on a big subsidy to the industry this week. Meanwhile, in a Monday interview with Fox, Republican Representative James Comer called Nancy Pelosi, quote, the ultimate insider, noting that her husband has made other controversial stock purchases before. And in Republican Party news, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been endorsing candidates for the Republican Party. The midterm elections are around the corner, but he also has his eye on 2024. In an interview with the Times UK, Pompeo indicated a potential bid for president and said Trump's candidacy won't affect his decision. Pompeo says he is fit to be in that position, but will make his decision after November's elections. He also says he will give his full support to Trump if he wins the nomination. Pompeo has launched a political action committee aimed at supporting conservatives called CAFPAC, or Champion American Values PAC. He has been traveling across the country, raising money for Republican candidates in the midterm elections. And coming up, rallies in support of human rights were held across the nation over the weekend. Entities Jason Blair heard what rally-goers and bystanders had to say in California. And Leah Thomas was nominated for the NCAA's Woman of the Year Award. NTD's Dave Martin reports on the controversy around it, as Thomas is transgender. In every country communism gains power, authoritarianism and death followed in its wake. Communism promises a world without suffering, and yet, in its execution, does the exact opposite. Following Lenin's death, Stalin's 29-year reign killed an estimated 60 to 66 million people. More famines and purges would occur. The very peasants that communism was supposed to benefit instead starved to death under its rule. The party dictates what is right and wrong. Mao ended up killing between 50 million and 70 million people. As an investigative journalist, I want to understand why. Over the weekend, there were marches, rallies, and candlelight vigils throughout the U.S. Believers of a meditation practice called attention to years of ongoing persecution and commemorated those who lost their lives standing up for their beliefs. NTD's Jason Blair has that story on the practice called Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa. Falun Dafa is a peaceful meditation practice that originated in China. Unfortunately, since 1999, China started persecuting the practice. San Francisco area practitioners are holding a rally with a parade to let people know about Falun Dafa and how the persecution is still going on to this day. Over 300 people paraded from San Francisco's ferry building to Chinatown's Portsmouth Square to commemorate 23 years of the persecution against Falun Dafa, also known as Falun Gong. In China, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, has arrested, abused, and killed practitioners at will since 1999. Sandy Wong, a Falun Gong practitioner since 1994, was one such victim. At the police station, they would force me to sign. They would force my hand open, but I made a fist because I won't sign. They bent this finger, my thumb, until it dislocated and couldn't sign anymore. Wong explained that she went out in public to clear Falun Gong's name as the CCP has slandered it for years. She was arrested and sent to jail and was in and out of jail several times since that incident. During that time, I was forced to do labor work. I had to wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning and work until 11 or 12 at night. It's common to work overtime. If we don't work overtime, we can sleep before 11 p.m. 
Wong says despite the CCP's efforts to break her faith, she held on to Falun Dafa because of how it changed her life. She was a single mom who had lost meaning in life. That all changed when she took up the practice. To be a good person, I think of others first in my daily life. The daily routine at home is still the same, but I no longer feel tired or miserable. It's that kind of feeling. But in 1999, the CCP began its persecution of Falun Gong. Those who do not choose to renounce their faith are beaten, brainwashed, jailed, with some even having their organs removed by force. We've never seen anything like this before um, uh, in the history of uh, you know, the world. Uh, uh, this is something so horrific as uh, taking organs for profit uh, as part of a medical genocide. Many pedestrians stopped to watch the parade and were dissatisfied with the lack of attention given to the human rights violations. Our media, mainstream media and social media, does not want to offend a CCP. That's the bottom line, and it's all money. You'll see people passing out the flyers and people really not paying attention. So at least, you know, you can't help but pay attention with the marching band and everything. But uh, yeah, a lot of people don't know about this, and I think it's ridiculous that this is happening still. It is very shocking, and I think um, this kind of of movements had to be made more often so that we make this conscious and... I didn't know people here in the country from China are fighting the communists. Uh, we are in South America, we are having the same problem. People still believe that the socialist communist is the good way to go because they have free education, they have free many things which doesn't exist. There is no free anything. People pay for that. The parade stopped here in Chinatown, where the marching band played a few songs to end the event. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And staying on the West Coast, in the country's ongoing battle against drug addiction and unintentional overdoses, one county in Northern California asked for help from teens through the use of an art competition. NTD's David Lamb reports, and just a warning, some of the art may be disturbing. Now in this county art competition for the face of fentanyl, the DA says there's 37 contestants and they're all depicting their interpretation of the fentanyl drug crisis. It's an annual Justice for All art competition from the Santa Clara County District Attorney's Office calling on high school students in the county to participate. I was just wanted to make something that could get the point across that fentanyl is bad and it hurts you. So I used darker colors with uh, the blue standing out on the pill. Um, and hopefully it has some powerful imagery that can, you know, make an impact on anyone who sees it. Fanley, a sophomore at Branham High School, earned first place from the DA's office and judges with her One Pill Can Kill poster. The runner-up was a freshman who depicted graphic details of fentanyl. She says she tried to put herself in the shoes of victims' families. to see if I were to express it, how would I... Um, draw it so that didn't use any words so I try to do my best with visuals. The top three contestants earned $1,500, $1,000 $500 respectively. When I was doing research on fentanyl I uh, was seeing that it was being like uh, advertised as something that wasn't like pain meds and it made me think of a wolf in sheep's clothing so that's what I did. Fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, and just a few grains can result in a fatal overdose. It can be 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. The risk is heightened when the drug is mixed with other substances. So far, 43 people in our county have died from it this year. Nine of them were 25 or younger. One was just 12 years old. The county launched a fentanyl working group in April this year and wants to remove the opioid from the streets. Bring the word out uh, throughout the entire county, uh, whether it's to kids, young adults, you know, other people as well. The DA's office plans to use the winning poster in an anti-overdose campaign. Family's message is that the opioid is destroying lives, bright futures, families and communities. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
University of Penn swimmer Leah Thomas was nominated for the NCAA's Woman of the Year Award in what has become a hot-button topic. The controversy is that Leah was actually born Will Thomas before undergoing hormone replacement therapy in 2019. By 2021, Will had gone through the full hormone therapy and started swimming for the women's team under the name Leah. As a result, Thomas's ranking jumped from 462nd to 1st. Thomas, who won the 500-yard freestyle event at this year's NCAA Championships, is one of 577 nominees for the award out of more than 220,000 female student-athletes. Among those who voiced their displeasure was former tennis great Martina Navratilova, who tweeted, not enough fabulous biological women athletes in NCAA, and asked, what is wrong with you? Former University of Kentucky swimmer Riley Gaines, who previously was nominated for the award, also chimed in, calling it a slap in the face to women. She then goes on to point out that the award combines athletic performance with academics, service, and character, and asks, what character has Thomas shown? Last month, the world's swimming governing body, FINA, effectively banned most men who identified as women from competing in their major swimming events. In baseball, the Home Run Derby takes place tonight as New York's Pete Alonzo looks to win his third straight contest. Alonzo has 24 home runs at the break and his 78 RBIs lead the majors. He takes on Atlanta's Ronald Acuna Jr. in the first round. In all, eight players will take part in this all-star warm-up, including 42-year-old Albert Pujols, who has just six home runs this year, but has accumulated 685, good for fifth all-time in his illustrious career. On the other end of the spectrum, Seattle's 21-year-old rookie Julio Rodriguez will be competing as well. Ironically, home run leader Aaron Judge, who leads the majors with 33, will not be participating in the event. In other All-Star Game news, three-time MVP Mike Trout will miss tomorrow night's game because of back spasms. In his place will be Seattle infielder Ty France. Trout's exclusion means that roughly one-fifth of the original 33-man rosters have now been replaced since being announced on July 8th. And finally, in golf, Australia's Cameron Smith won the British Open yesterday after overcoming a four-shot deficit on the final day to win the Claret Jug. Smith was still three shots back of leader Roy McIlroy when he started the back nine. But that's when he caught fire, burning five straight holes to catapult him to the top of the leaderboard. When he finished with another birdie on 18, it gave him an overall score of 268, the best ever at the infamous old course at St. Andrews. McIlroy, who was vying for his first major title since 2014, ended up in third place, while American Cameron Young finished runner-up. Other notables include live golfers Dustin Johnson, who finished tied for sixth, and Phil Mickelson, who, like Tiger Woods, missed the cut. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Ukraine's president fires the head of the country's domestic security agency and the top state prosecutor. That's after finding hundreds of cases of treason and collaboration with Russia. And European residents are finding ways to keep cool during a record-breaking heat wave. The hot weather has caused hundreds of deaths and huge wildfires in past weeks. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has fired the head of the country's domestic security agency, the SBU, and the top state prosecutor. That's after dozens of officials in their agencies were found to be collaborating with Russia in its invasion of Ukraine. 
Zelensky said SBU chief Ivan Bakanov, a childhood friend, and Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova, who's been leading war crime cases against Russia, had to take responsibility for the 650-plus cases of treason and collaboration opened against their staff. Such an array of crimes against the foundations of the state's national security and the connections detected between the employees of Ukraine's security forces and Russian special services pose very serious questions to the relevant leaders. Each of these questions will receive a proper answer. The firings are the biggest political sacking since the invasion began. Zelensky said more than 60 officials from the pair's departments were now working against Ukraine in Russian-occupied territories and noted the problem had touched other departments as well. The sheer number of treason cases lays bare the huge challenge of Russian infiltration faced by Ukraine since Moscow began what it calls its special military operation on February 24th. In particular, questions have loomed over how the southern port region of Kherson fell so quickly to Russia in early March. That was in sharp contrast to the fierce resistance around Kyiv that forced Russia eventually to back off and instead focus on capturing Donbass in the east. Russian troops have now captured swaths of Ukraine's south and east in an invasion that has killed thousands, displaced millions and destroyed entire cities. And Zelensky has appointed an experienced security official and corruption fighter as the acting security agency chief. And amid an ongoing energy crisis in the European Union, Russia's Gazprom has told European customers that it cannot guarantee them gas supp supplies. This is according to a Gazprom letter seen by Reuters. The letter said it's doing this because of extraordinary circumstances. Currently, there are fears that Russia will completely cut off Europe's supply of gas. The head of the International Energy Agency warned today that this is a real possibility. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about the situation is European economist Daniel Lacaille. He's chief economist at the Tresses Hedge Fund. So Daniel, thanks for coming on. You know, let's just get right into this, uh, this issue. What kind of danger is Europe in if Russia cuts off its supply of gas completely? Well, if Russia cuts uh, its uh, supply of gas completely, Europe is in really, really uh, big trouble. Because think about this, uh, there is absolutely no source of energy that can offset the volume of gas that comes from Russia. Uh, Europe imports about 150 BCM of natural gas from Russia. Uh, it can reduce the dependence on Russian gas by importing US LNG or some gas from Norway and other sources, but still, there is no other alternative, even if they reopen some of the coal, mines, coal plants, sorry, and some of the nuclear plants, it is not enough. And uh, the combination of renewables, wind and solar, is uh, definitely not a solution because, as you know, they're intermittent and volatile, and obviously, uh, they work with a load that is around 22 to 40 percent. Therefore, they cannot upset the volumes coming from Russia. Now, Russia knows how much Europe depends on it. So how likely will Russia actually do this? I think it's not that easy. On the one hand, it is true that the European Union has a tremendous dependence on Russian gas. But on the other hand, we have to ask ourselves the question, what can Russia do with that gas? Because it's not easy to sell it elsewhere. It's not easy to send it anywhere else. And the uh, transportation system, as well as the storage system of uh, Russia, are quite full already. So uh, for Russia, it's also a, a double-edged sword. It cannot simply just turn off the taps, and it would be a massive loss of uh, dollar and euro revenues that are much needed in this environment. Now, Daniel, what effect would the gas shortage have on European industries? Well, European industries are certainly suffering. If you think about the number of industries that would have to shut down entirely its activities if Russia decided to stop uh, sending gas to Europe, that would certainly cause a massive recession in the European Union. There are numerous sectors that would collapse immediately. You know, between the economy, the people, industries, who would feel the pain the most? Certainly the people. 
uh, prices are already very high. Uh, many households are being unable to uh, accommodate the spending required, for example, for air conditioning in the middle of a heat wave. So imagine what it would be when it gets cold in winter and the price of natural gas, essential for heating, uh, rockets to a new all-time high. Uh, people would certainly feel the impact more severely. How did the European Union get into this situation? Well, it's a, it's a very complicated situation because the so-called dependence on Russian gas was not something that was a mistake or something that was uh, uh, sort of a, a lack of uh, planning. It was actually planned. It was uh, perceived that uh, having more interaction and commercial ties with Russia would improve the relationships with the Russian regime. Uh, everybody would understand that it's uh, a, even a, a, a good decision uh, to think that by strengthening commercial ties with an autocratic regime, uh, that regime will uh, slowly but surely improve in terms of governance and in terms of democratic approach and openness and uh, the trade capabilities uh, but obviously it's not always the way that uh, one plans and time obviously uh, puts everything in a different perspective well it didn't work on china when uh, you know they try to let china into the world trade organization but anyways daniel lakaye chief economist at tresses thanks for coming on thank you very much and now to food shortages. A pub in Germany has found a novel way to beat Europe's cooking oil shortages. It's letting customers pay for their beer with sunflower oil to ensure there's enough frying for schnitzels. Lucy Fielder has more. A Munich brew pub is beating Europe's cooking oil shortages and ensuring plentiful stocks by letting customers pay for their beer with sunflower oil. Ukraine and Russia account for about 80% of global exports of sunflower seed oil. So supplies have dwindled in many European countries because of the conflict. Bottles of rapeseed and sunflower oil have become more scarce on German supermarket shelves, and many shops ration the number of bottles per customer. Eric Hoffman is the manager of Munich's Geisinger Brewery. Getting oil is very difficult for the reason that we do it in the supermarket with every private customer. There, you can only get it rationed and in smaller quantities. And if you need 30 litres a week and only get 15 instead, at some point you won't be able to fry a schnitzel any longer. To compensate for this shortage, the brewery is offering beer lovers a litre of their favourite brew for the same quantity of sunflower oil. While a litre of beer costs about $7 in German pubs, a one-litre bottle of sunflower oil retails for about $4.50, making the offer tempting for many customers. The customers are very satisfied with it. They are helped and we are helped. They are happy to help us. The heat wave sweeping southern Europe showed some signs of letting up today. The hot weather in the region has caused hundreds of deaths and huge wildfires in past weeks. Here's more. Authorities across southern Europe continue to battle huge wildfires on Sunday in countries including Spain, Greece, France and Italy, with hundreds of deaths blamed on soaring temperatures. Shocked residents watched thick plumes of smoke rise above Spain's central western Herte Valley. Across the country in Catalonia, people were forced to flee their homes as wildfires quickly spread near residential areas. Temperatures in the country have reached as high as 114 degrees Fahrenheit or 45.7 Celsius during the nearly week-long heat wave. Residents in Madrid took to the streets in an annual water fight to battle the heat. Spain's weather agency said it would end Monday but warned temperatures would remain abnormally high. In France, wildfires have now spread over 27,000 acres in the southwestern region of Gironde, and more than 14,000 people have been evacuated, regional authorities said Sunday, adding that more than 1,200 firefighters were working to control blazes that have grown massively over the past few days. The country has issued red alerts for several regions, the highest possible warning, urging residents to be extremely vigilant. In Italy, where smaller fires have blazed in recent days, forecasters expect temperatures above 40 Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit in several regions in coming days. Over to the UK, where much of the country is in the second day of a heat wave. 
Wales saw record temperatures while England experienced the hottest day of the year. The high temperatures put pressure on Britain's transit and healthcare system. NTD's Joanna Conway has more. The Met Office says Wales has provisionally recorded its hottest day on record, with the temperature reaching 37.1 degrees Celsius in Harward and Flintshire, beating the previous record for the country, which has been in place since 1990. Tuesday is predicted to be even hotter, with temperatures possibly reaching 40 degrees Celsius in parts of England. Britons are being urged to stay inside during the hottest parts of the day and keep hydrated. The UK Health Security Agency has issued a Level 4 heat health alert, described as an emergency, while the Met Office has issued the UK's first red extreme heat warning, with both running from Monday to Wednesday. In London, temperatures touch 33 degrees Celsius at 9.30 in the morning. It's, uh, it's very hot outside. I think uh, staying in the shade is the best option you've got and just keep hydrating yourself. Sunscreen obviously as well, but uh, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous how hot uh, the weather is getting in Europe in general, I think. It's not that bad in the shade. Like in Alabama, it's hot and wet, so it's, here it's kind of dry. So we haven't really minded it yet. Tomorrow's supposed to be the big day. The UK is facing travel disruption with some schools choosing to close as the country braces for extreme heat over the next two days. Network Rail has warned journey times could more than double for train passengers. Speed restrictions are in place amid fears of rails buckling in the heat. The NHS has also seen added pressure as a heat wave led to a surge in demand for services. Additional contingency support is in place for ambulance services such as more core handlers and extra working hours. Some operating theatres had to suspend work because they couldn't be kept at required temperatures. At least 100 schools opted to close or partially close over both Monday and Tuesday, including those in Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire and Cambridgeshire. Water UK says the extreme heat has resulted in the unprecedented peak demand for water in recent days, with the most intense demand across the south of England. The industry body encourages people to carefully consider their water usage and not to waste it. Soaring temperatures also saw a loosening of the House of Commons dress code for MPs. Speaker Sir Lindsay Hoyle said MPs would not be required to wear jackets in the Commons chamber for the rest of the week. Joanna Conway, NTD News. And in France, at least 15,000 healthcare workers who chose not to get the COVID vaccine have been dismissed. As hospitals continue to face severe staffing shortages, the government had promised to reinstate them. But that hasn't happened, and the workers have gone without pay for months. NTD's France correspondent David Vives brings us this report. Last week in the southern French region of Vaucluse, all the heads of the emergency reception services quit in protest. They wanted to highlight the dire staff shortage in French hospitals. While the heat wave has led to a rise in hospital admissions, Healthcare workers are missing. Many observers describe the situation as a catastrophe. The French Hospital Federation says 99% of hospitals have difficulty recruiting. Healthcare unions say the COVID crisis has been exhausting for workers. Moreover, hospitals lack workers who have been dismissed because they refuse to take the COVID vaccine. At least 15,000 of them have been forced to leave their jobs since September 2021. In April, French President Emmanuel Macron promised they would be reinstated, but he hasn't yet made good on his decision. Maud Marion is a lawyer defending these workers. She says there is no way to know if they will be able to return to their jobs. It is difficult to present arguments that are controversial about the vaccine. We are not waiting for a response, so we do not know what the minister will do. Some healthcare workers have been protesting for months asking to be reinstated. They say they are denied pay and government assistance. We've spoke to some of them who said they can prove that they have developed strong immunity to COVID after being exposed to patients, but the hospital administrations have not taken this into account. Marion says there have been many court decisions that ruled that these unjabbed staff should be reinstated. But local government-managed health agencies are opposed. Through emergency procedures, several courts have ruled that the private employees should be reinstated, as they are private employees. 
but the hospitals say that the health agencies are going to cause them problems, that they should not be reinstated in their posts. This is the same as not respecting a court decision. The health agencies do not respect court decisions. Even when we win at the employment tribunal, the person is not reinstated. They are not paid. Today we have reached a level of extremism in the reading of the law where even if we win in court, we don't manage to reinstate people. She also says the higher the number of jabs, the less likely it is healthcare workers will comply. Even if there was new law mandating the vaccine, there would be much less compliance. A large part of the caregivers who had given two doses did not want to take their third dose, and now we are below 50% of compliance for the fourth dose. It is not yet in the law, even though some hospitals are already practicing it. But it will not be long before it is. Very clearly, there will be a whole series of people who are going to be suspended. So there will be a moment when the law, even if it passes, will not be respected. David Dives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, a zoo in California rescues two tigers from Oklahoma and takes them to a new home. The tigers were neglected at a tourist attraction, living in poor conditions. And Chicago celebrates National Ice Cream Day at a new museum, featuring ice cream treats and pools filled with sprinkles. That and more after this short break. Two neglected tigers that were once at a tourist attraction are beginning new lives in a new home. California's Oakland Zoo rescued the big cats and gave them much-needed medical care. Let's take a look at how they're doing now. California's Oakland Zoo rescued two female tigers, now named Lola and Mia, from a roadside tourist attraction in Oklahoma last month. The U.S. Department of Agriculture shut down the attraction for multiple animal safety and welfare violations. Because they're no longer making money for people, once these cats you know, become really teenagers, they're too dangerous, they may not get fed, they may be killed, they may be sold um, for uh, game hunting, and the facilities are very, very minimal. They usually live in small cages. Since there were no records of the big cat's history, the zoo doesn't know their age or vaccination record. Workers at the zoo say people can do the following if they want to help tigers. So if you want to help tigers, shop responsibly to minimize habitat loss. There's great places you can look to research for that. And if you're going to help a tiger sanctuary, make sure that they are an accredited sanctuary with the Big Cat Sanctuary Alliance. Additionally, um, press your legislators to pass federally the Big Cat Public Safety Act. And that means that these tigers can't be kept as pets. Lola had a facial deformity caused by an untreated tooth infection and Mia had been declawed as a cub. It's a painful process which removes part of the animal's paws. The Oakland Zoo says they are very happy to be able to provide the two tigers with a forever home and a good quality of life. And I think, I mean, it will be very heartwarming to see them be able to walk on out, walk out on grass for probably the first time ever. And, you know, tigers love water. You know, the moment they get to, you know, jump into the pool, I think just there's going to be so many times when, you know, we really will be so happy about this work that we're doing. The Tigers will live in the Oakland Zoo's newly remodeled tiger exhibit. It had been empty since their previous rescue tiger passed away last year. And staying in California, a Los Angeles-based museum is holding a series of free weekend events over the summer. It's for the museum's 25th anniversary. NTD's Jackie Rios went to see what fun people were having at this weekend's festival. The Getty Center celebrating its 25th birthday by holding events all over Los Angeles County. And you're invited to the party. This weekend's two-day event is happening here at Tony Arceo's Memorial Park in El Monte with live music, food trucks, giveaways and more. So let's go to the party. The Getty is a museum in West Los Angeles that offers art ranging from the Middle Ages to today. 
To celebrate its 25th anniversary, the museum put on a family-friendly event for all ages to enjoy. We just came to visit and see what it was like. So, a nice small festival. Very nice. The activities included traditional dances from both local and international cultures. One girl took part in the dances. My daughter's actually performing today. Really? Yeah. She's doing a ballet and tap dancing. The museum has put on free festivals since May, and they will continue over several weekends until the end of August. The Getty is usually free to attend, but right now it requires a time entry reservation. Normally, doors are open to anyone. Jackie Rios, NTD News, Los Angeles. And over in Chicago, they celebrated National Ice Cream Day yesterday with giant sprinkle pools, ice cream, and a Willy Wonka-esque ice cream adventure. Here's the story. I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. People in Chicago celebrated National Ice Cream Day on Sunday with an ice cream-themed adventure inside and outside of the newly opened Museum of Ice Cream in downtown Chicago. Manish Vora, co-founder of the Museum of Ice Cream, says the museum helps adults rediscover their inner kid. We're using the power of ice cream to get people to forget about what's going on in the outside world, forget about your worries, and actually come and play like a kid. If you tap into that inner child. The museum's interactive games draw out the childlike innocence of adults. We have a putt-putt, a three-hole ice cream-inspired mini golf course that is a part of the experience from an interactive cherry-on-top game where you are going to uh, build your ultimate ice cream sundae using these cherries that you're going to be flicking into the virtual world. Adult visitors dunk themselves in the giant sprinkle pools like kids inside and outside of the museum. Emmy Sorrells from Alabama made the dive. Oh, you feel like a child again. You look, I mean, I would never jump in a sprinkle pool anywhere except for the Museum of Ice Cream. Sophia Lewis from Chicago enjoyed swimming in the sprinkles and visiting the ice cream history exhibit. The best part was jumping into sprinkles head first, but it was a lot of historical facts and different stuff to taste, so it was a lot of fun. I'm like five. Daring visitors got to be adventurous kids again, trying unusual flavored ice cream. LG Betts from Chicago tasted hot dog ice cream, a hot dog flavored ice cream complete with hot dog seasoning real mustard and a pickle. Tasting the hot dog ice cream, I didn't expect that to be so good to me. It had pickle flavored everything. It was pretty, pretty good. Visitors ended the visit at a Prohibition era themed speakeasy where they tasted cocktails, milkshakes, sprinkle pool sundaes and exotic drinks. Vora hopes that the Willy Wonka like ice cream museum energizes senses and reimagines the way people experience and love ice cream. Reporting by Angela Moy, NTD News, Chicago. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.